Go ahead and begin. So uh, we have handouts there on the way in that you may have seen, but those of you maybe who haven't, um, handouts right there on the tech booth to follow along with. Um, Let me go ahead and open us with prayer, and then we'll move forward from there. Father God, we thank you for gathering us as Christ's people to once again worship you on the Lord's Day, the day that remembers his resurrection from the dead, which seals the victory that his cross has won over sin and over death and the life that we have in him by faith. We thank you that in this new life that we enjoy in Christ, you mean to renew us and remake us into his likeness. And you've poured out your spirit to that very end to make us a new creation in him. And Father, as we've been studying this topic of contentment, satisfaction in you and all that you choose to give us in this life and all that you choose to withhold from us in this life, we pray that this renewing work of your spirit would uh, be at work in us, in our hearts. In this series, you've already been searching our hearts and you've already been showing us areas of grumbling and dissatisfaction with you and how easily prone we are to those things. And you've also showed us the beauty of a content heart. And we pray that that teaching would continue in our lives and continue to go deeper into our souls so that we would have the joy of resting in you and saying like the Apostle Paul, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure plenty and hunger, abundance and need because I have Christ. May that be the prayer of each of our hearts more and more profoundly as a result of what we see today. Give me faithfulness and clarity to communicate your word to your people. Give us all alertness and soft hearts. We pray you'd be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our uh, class on contentment based on this Puritan classic by Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Now, this is the fifth week of our series, and it's been broken up by a couple weeks off because of Christmas and New Year, but um, for that reason, it's been a little while, I want to know if anyone can help uh, jog our memories about some things we've covered up to this point. So what are some things we've talked about in this series? If you're stumped, just a little, a little, uh, uh, a little hint here, there, there is, on the very back of your handout, there is info on what we've covered in this series. That might help uh, help jog your memory a little bit. But what have we talked about? Yeah, sure. What isn't contentment? Yeah, that's right. That first lesson had a lot of that. We we looked at Burroughs' definition of what it is in great detail, kind of looking at each piece. And a lot of that was kind of disentangling what it isn't, right? We might think, Oh, it's being happy with my conditions outwardly. No, it's an inward, quiet disposition uh, that's really not dependent on our outward circumstances. So yeah, a lot of things that we may feel are contentment or mistake for contentment, we kind of we kind of um, disabused ourselves of some of those uh, misunderstandings. Yes. What else? It's all right. To be learned. Something to be learned. Yeah. So Paul, like our main text has been Philippians 4, 10 to 13, where Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And so it's something that's learned, which means it's not natural to us. 
uh, even upon the moment of conversion. We're not suddenly become content people. But yet it is something that in Christ we can, uh, we're on a journey of growth and we can learn this, we could call it this virtue. And um, last week we kind of, Burroughs used that kind of metaphor of the school of contentment. We looked at what are the lessons, what are sort of the things that you learn when you're learning contentment. Can anyone remember any, now we're getting more detail, but it's only last week. Can anyone remember any of those things? What are some of the lessons that we're learning when Christ is teaching us to be content? I know. It was a week ago. I don't remember very many of them either off the top of my head. Uh, Dee Dee? Yes. We deserve nothing. Yes. That was exactly the self denial, right? Uh, Just remembering how small we are relative to God and how little we can do without grace and and all that. We deserve nothing, right? Yes. So the lesson of self denial, and we saw various facets of that, is crucial to be content. We saw the vanity of the creature, meaning that created things are good, they're made by God for us to enjoy, but they're, they're merely passing away. They're a breath or a vapor. And uh, to learn contentment, we have to learn how impermanent created things are and how the things that really matter, the things that are permanent, are things that won't be shaken. Yeah. We had a couple weeks on the mystery of contentment, right? Just the kind of the paradoxical nature of how it... it, it it um, violates some natural assumptions we have about how things work. Um, that it is, in so much of the time, it's not really a big takeaway, kind of a big high-level overview of all that, is it's not so much God changing our outward conditions, but God changing us that makes us content. It's our uh, learning to be satisfied in God Himself. So these are some of the, this is some of the ground we've covered. And uh, this should be a very encouraging today, a very encouraging install. Uh, installment in our series on the excellence of contentment. As I said, Jason's going to come in next week and start being bad cop. Uh, <laughs> uh, just because that's the sequence of the, the lessons. Uh, but we're going to learn more about the sin of discontentment for a few weeks. But this is uh, one on the excellence of contentment. Or what we could say is, what makes contentment so good? What makes it so desirable? What makes it so valuable? Why should we treasure it and pursue it even when learning it requires such a war against our flesh, such a war against our sinful inclinations. And um, I think this one is like we're on this journey through the forest, and it's tough, right? We go up some hills, and there's some, some, some rugged terrain. This time we get to climb a tree and just kind of survey, where are we headed? What's so good about the destination of Christian contentment that will help motiv- both give us direction but also motivate us to keep on the journey of learning contentment? And I pray that God gives us a fresh vision for what is so beautiful about Christian contentment, a heart that's resting, uh, satisfied in him, and that it will continue to motivate our hearts toward pursuing this. So um, let's look at eight arguments for the excellence of Christian contentment that Burroughs suggests. The first one is, by contentment we give God the worship that is due to him. By contentment we give God the worship that is due to him. Um, And this is fitting as creatures to the creator we owe him an obligation of worship he made us and uh, he's greater than us in every way and Burroughs contends that you know we, we have activities outward activities of worship like when we gather as a church and we hear sermons and we pray to him and all these things are worship but really the heart of worship is not the outward activities 
It's a heart that's bowing itself to God. And uh, that's what makes all these activities worshipful if we're really doing them in this way. And if our hearts aren't bowing to God, it's not worship. It's an outward show. Um, and, and one place you see this in Scripture is Micah 6, 8. This is maybe many people love this verse. It's a beautiful uh, picture of, of the life of one who's seeking the Lord. And in this text, uh, it really, Micah 6, 6 through 8, the prophet is raising the question, what kind of sacrifice will I bring to the Lord to please him? And then he kind of goes through some ideas. Like, what if I bring all these animal sacrifices? Or even things that he doesn't call for in Scripture. What if I, I, I make a human sacrifice? No. What he settles on is it's not all these, these kind of outward sacrifices that truly please the Lord. He said in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so right at the, the burning center of worship is a heart that is humble before God. And part of what this means is a heart that is willing to accept what he disposes, what he chooses to give by his providence with a heart of contentment rather than bristling against what he chooses to give us. That's not a heart that walks humbly with God. So um, Burroughs uses terminology of kind of distinguishing between active obedience and passive obedience. Um, Now, active obedience, he would say, is doing what God, what pleases God, doing what he calls us to do. But then passive obedience would be um, when we worship God by being pleased by what he does. It's receiving what he chooses to ordain for our lives with a still heart. That's a form of obedience, isn't it? Because we all, and, and it, to, to prove it to yourself, imagine, isn't it disobedience when our hearts resist what he's choosing to ordain for us? When there's some circumstance that befalls us and our hearts bristle and harden against it. We know that's disobedience. So it's a form of obedience to accept it. He says, I labor to do what pleases God. That's the active. And I labor that what God does shall please me. That's the passive obedience. Here is a Christian indeed who shall endeavor both of these. This is evidence that God's grace is at work in us. We endeavor to do what pleases God and that what he chooses to ordain, we would, we would find joy in it. We would uh, accept it with quiet hearts. Any thoughts about this? That it's beautiful. This is a way of worshiping God. The, the creator who deserves our worship is that we uh, respond with still and quiet hearts to what he ordains for us. It, this has somewhat been implied in what we've covered. You're going to see in this lesson especially, there's, there's a lot of overlap between points we've already seen kind of being framed in slightly different ways. But it's good. I think it's good for us to just be reminded of a lot of this. So this isn't entirely new, but any any questions or thoughts about this matter of worship? Contentment is worship. All right. Um, the second reason that contentment is excellent is that in contentment there's much experience of grace, and uh, this is this is an encouraging note that content Christians have um, a unique ability to showcase the grace of God. By being a content Christian, God's grace can be on display in your life in some, some amazing ways. And he points out three ways that this is true. The first is it shows off the diversity of grace. And we've, this we've talked about in a different context. The idea that contentment is, um, it may seem like one thing when we look at it from the outside. But as we've seen, when you kind of break it open, it's kind of a bundle of different 
qualities, a, a different virtues, different lessons that we learn in Christ, different ways that His grace is working in us. Like we just saw um, last week, all the things you have to learn to learn contentment. Uh, a content Christian is not just content. A content Christian is exhibiting faith and humility and love and patience and wisdom and hope. And there's probably more besides that we could think of that is just part of what it means to be content. It's part of what contentment consists of. It's almost a combination of all these different graces God's working in our lives. So to be content is especially a clear way to, to display the diversity of how God's grace is at work in us. Um, as a, just an illustration of this, when scientists are studying water quality in a stream, allow me a, a hydrologic example uh, from my past, uh, there's many tools in their belt that they can use. They can measure individual th- parameters of measure for the water, things like pH or temperature or how much dissolved oxygen is in the water that helps uh, living creatures like fish get oxygen. Or they could measure how concentrated certain uh, constituents, things in the water like sodium or mercury, how concentrated are these things? That'll affect the quality of the water. Any of these individual measures can certainly be helpful, but each one only gives a narrow slice of the whole picture. You could have water that looks good in one of these measures, but is really way off in another, and that's going to be unhealthy. There's another way that they have to measure the health of the whole system. And I think this is pretty cool. It's, it's called a, a benthic invertebrate survey. And sorry for the, the big words. But benthic means the bottom. It's like the bottom of the, the, the stream. And invertebrates are bugs. Okay, so it's a long way of saying bugs. Okay, so this is what they do: they they mark off a little square of the stream bottom, and then they get all they they get all the bugs they can off the bottom, and then they count, they survey all the different species and how many of each kind there are, and they they log all these. And there's some intern, right, some undergraduate, we're <laughs> slaving away counting all the bugs and identifying them. And then what they do is they can look at the distribution of different species and they can tell how, how good the water quality is because certain species are much more tolerant of bad water quality. And certain ones are much more sensitive to bad water quality. So if they see there's only like one or two kinds of bugs, they go, oh, this is not good because all the sensitive species have died off. But if they see a higher diversity in some of the kind of indicators that, oh, these are the kind of the weak ones that can't handle a lot of bad water quality, and they're, and they're here, that's good. So it's kind of a, a big picture overview of how healthy is the water in this stream. And we can almost say contentment is like that in the Christian life. You could look at individual virtues. How am I doing in this and that? I, I would say, I think Burroughs is arguing that basically the big picture, how am I doing in Christ? We could argue contentment is maybe the best measure of that. Because it, it, it assumes all these other things. Love of God and not of myself. Faith instead of living by sight. Etc, etc. So um, that's part of the beauty of, of contentment. Is it shows all these things at once. That God is working in our lives. Uh, the second way that contentment shows off God's grace. Is it shows the strength of grace. And this can be encouraging for people who maybe. Um, you know we can, we can be tempted to measure how God's working in us by our productivity. Um, our society loves productivity. We love to show off and just and, and measure ourselves. What am I getting done? And in a Christian life, we can feel that way too. We can feel like, oh, what am I, you know, what am I, what's on my resume as a Christian? We can even measure like what ways am I serving in the local church, which are, which are good. I encourage you to serve the local church. But 
Sometimes we're, we're unable to do those things because of maybe bodily weakness or, or other life circumstances. And it can feel like, wow, maybe I'm a bad Christian. You know, maybe I'm not doing enough. Um, and of course, there's a lot to say about that kind of mentality. One is that enough is kind of a dangerous word, right, in, in the Christian life because it's, it's purely a matter of grace. But another encouragement to a person like that is to say, well, one way to show off the strength of God's grace working in you, in fact, the best way to show off the strength of God's grace working in you is, how content is your heart? Are you resting secure in God? Are you resting satisfied in Him? You can do that in any and every circumstance. Isn't that beautiful? Like, even if your, your health or other life circumstances are keeping you from uh, showing off God's grace in certain ways, any, from anywhere you may find yourself, you can be content in Christ. And that, that's what shows off that God's grace is working powerfully in you. Not necessarily the, the resume type stuff, right? The things that you can say that you've done for God. The third way that contentment shows off grace is it shows the beauty of grace. Um, and Burroughs says, There is no work which God has made, the sun, moon, stars, and all the world, in which so much of the glory of God appears as in a man who lives quietly in the midst of adversity. There is something captivating and beautiful about a content Christian that, uh, that can make the saints rejoice, other Christians when they see it, that can even make the lost um, notice and go, wow, there's something about this person that, that, that uh, natural categories can't explain. Now, throughout this series, who's been our, our preeminent example throughout this series of a content man? That we've, we've kept citing his example. Paul, right? And what text have we been looking at over and over? Philippians chapter 4. I've, I've cited it like five times already and, and alluded to it and quoted it. Where he's, he's in, where is he when he's writing in Philippians? He's in jail. He's in house arrest in Rome. And he's saying, uh, look, I can face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, there's another picture of Paul actually when he was in Philippi that I think shows off the beauty of the grace of contentment in a, in a wonderful way. You may recall in Acts 16, he's on his second missionary journey, and he and Silas are in prison there in Philippi overnight for their ministry of the gospel. And where does 16, verse 25, find them? This is before, uh, well, I won't get into that yet. The scene opens, Paul and Silas, and someone would someone look at, uh, find and read Acts 16, 25? All right. Good night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They are singing hymns to God in prison. Now that's the beauty of grace on display, isn't it? These are men that are content. I mean, you cannot sing. I mean, yeah, you, you, you can't fake singing, right? Like, if, I mean, maybe you're in a church service, you can fake it because everyone expects. But if you're in prison, like, no one expects you to be singing, right? Right? <laughs> The fact that these guys, this is what, the, what overflows from their hearts, is they can, they can be so secure and satisfied with what Christ has chosen to dispose in their lives that they can sing in prison. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture. They're singing in prison because they're rejoicing. They have God. They have Christ. They know they're secure in Him. Whatever happens. And they don't know what's, they don't know what's the outcome of this detainment will be. But um, other than the life of Jesus himself, of course, the preeminent example of all these graces, um, I defy you to produce a more beautiful and God-glorifying example of grace at work in the life of a Christian. And what is it but contentment that these guys can sing in prison? 
Um, now, maybe there are other examples, and it doesn't have to be a better example. I just said it in a way like, I dare you to find a better example. But are there other good examples that you can think of from people you've observed in your life or people in the Bible or people in church history where there's just these jaw-dropping displays of the beauty of God's grace working through someone's contentment? Does anything come to your mind? Cindy? Daniel, when he prayed, even though he knew he could be thrown into a fiery furnace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Daniel. No, not a fiery furnace. He was the lion's. Lion's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, he prayed. No, yeah, so the courage to pray knowing that he might have to face a death sentence, and he did face a death sentence. Uh, but, yeah, and we, we could, you know, we might frame that story as bravery or something like that, and it is, but it's also contentment. He goes, I have God. Like, that's why you pray, right? I have God. It's a relationship with God, and so he goes, I'd rather have God, and, and I can just deal with it. He'll help me deal with it. And then, uh, Jeff, you said, Smokey's been a great example to us in so many ways, right? We've been able to remember um, content through all sorts of trials, especially physical health trials, and he did not complain. And it was there was there was so much beauty in that. Uh, John, did you have your? Yeah, I was going to mention fiery furnaces. I yeah, Meshach and Abednego. Their their response was, you know, you can't kill us if it's not God's will. Yeah, they were they were content either way. They're like, our God will save us, and if He doesn't, it's still good. But, <laughs> yeah. It's paradoxical, but I love it. It's like, oh, God will save us. And if he doesn't save us, then he'll, yeah, he's still, he'll, he's still got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Didi. Mm-hmm. And as everything was taken from him, mm. all the way to his death, which was last year, he just was always content, 100% mm-hmm. content. I've never wow. seen someone so, yeah, just... Completely can tell his life, even though it offered him very little here. Yeah, and that kind of example, when you see that, and you and you notice your own heart and how responsive you are to a certain level of problems, you're like, "Wow, some like God is God has." And you know that doesn't come for free, right? Like people, people that look like this, God has chiseled away at sin, and by His grace in their lives. So if God's chiseling away at the sin of discontentment in your life, just think he might be turning you into someone like that. You might be on your way to God. So, so instead of just the, oh, I guess I better be content, even though, you know, once again, there's something painful happening and I can't complain because we're, Jim's teaching on contentment. So, yeah. Trust me, that's my inner dialogue so much of the time. I'm teaching on contentment. But instead, the, the point of this lesson is, isn't it a beautiful thing where Christ is taking us? And some of these examples... Can, can really encourage our hearts. And, but it does not come easy. It comes by the, 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 the painful pruning of John 15. He cuts, he prunes every branch in the vine to make it bear fruit. So thanks for those examples that y'all have suggested. The, the, uh, back onto our, our main list, so we're outside of that, shows off grace. Uh, the third argument that is contentment is excellent is that by contentment the souls... Uh, the soul is fitted to receive mercy. By contentment, the soul is fitted to receive mercy. And here Burroughs kind of um, reflects on the way of parents dealing with their children. And uh, we know, for instance, that God disciplines every son he receives. We, we see that in Hebrews 12.6. God is, is a good father. 
and he does so to make us uh, bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness there in Hebrews 12 verse 11. So uh, this, you know, this, this picture of God, uh, discipline is painful at the time. Hebrews 12 says that he sometimes afflicts us in ways that are not ultimate in order to uh, make us bear fruit in ways that are permanent and ultimate, right? He, he afflicts us in the in temporary ways in order to make us more like Christ. And so he reasons like, parents, let's um, think about when, our, when, when, when a kid wants something and they're throwing a fit. And, uh, and, and even, let's say it's something that you wanted to give them. <laughs> something you're inclined to give them, but they're throwing an absolute fit for it. Um, any, any seasoned parents in here want to tell me, do you want to give that thing to that kid in that state? Even if you wanted to give it to them already, by virtue of the way that they're demanding it, you're like, hold on. I'm not going to give it to you in this state. Um, what do we first do? We would, we would bring them to calm down first. We would insist that they're going to calm down first. They're going to come sweet and quiet first. They're going to become happy without the thing before we give them the thing, right? Think of a toddler. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that they're happy before we don't in our best moments. I'm not saying that. we all stumble in many ways, <laughs> but uh, ideally we want them to be calm and quiet in their hearts, and then we give them the thing. And he's saying, wouldn't doesn't God do this with us? Wouldn't wouldn't our heavenly Father do this with us? He's not caving to demands. He doesn't cave to demands. He's gonna say, hold on. If there may be things that are good, things that He wants to give us, but in our hearts we're so throwing a tantrum. That out of love, he's going to go, wait, hold on. Let's, let's learn to still your heart without this thing. And then I'm, I delight to give you this thing. That may be what God is doing. Sometimes he may do that. And so isn't, isn't contentment excellent because it stills our heart before God and fits us to then receive his gifts. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more later on that it, 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 it uniquely fits us to receive his gifts as gifts of love. When we're in throwing a fit, we do not receive things as gifts of love, do we? We receive them as demands that are satisfied. And God doesn't want to give us things that way. Think of last week's sermon passage in Mark 10. We had James and John um, going, Jesus, will you fulfill our selfish ambition? Will you exalt us in your kingdom? And just thinking about these two men's lives, I mean, in some ways the answer is like, yes, you will receive great reward in the kingdom of God. I'm sure James and John will have wonderful places of reward in, in the eternal kingdom of Christ. But Jesus doesn't just cut to the chase, right? He first, he's like, I'm going to knock down your selfish ambition because you're seeking this the wrong way. You're misunderstanding my kingdom. Uh, and, I, and I would say that's, that's kind of a, an illustration of this. That he first, first I want to correct what's, what's disordered about your hearts. And then, eventually, actually, you will suffer for the gospel, and you will. They will receive a reward. I don't know if they'll be the ones on the right and the left in his glory, but the point is, um, he, he, he wants to humble them before he'll then exalt them. And so sometimes in our afflictions, that's what God's doing. He's getting us, our hearts, to the place where we can say, your will be done before he gives us the thing, even a thing we think we absolutely need and can't live without. He first wants us to be able to not just say with our lips, but really own it. Your will be done. And then receiving the mercy is, is, is a beautiful gift, isn't it? Um, any, any thoughts about that, that point? Or questions? 
Let's look at the uh, the fourth excellence of contentment. By contentment, the soul is fit to do service. Uh, would someone read James 1, verses 2 to 4 for us, please? Yeah, Wilson, thanks. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thank you. So here's a condensed kind of summary. Trials make us steadfast, and steadfast faith completes us as Christians. That's what that perfect and complete means. It's whole. The idea of wholeness. It completes us as Christians. And so if God is going to use us and make us fruitful in his service, he has to do what to our hearts? What's the intermediate step there? Transform us in, yeah, in what way? So trials make us what? In that passage. Steadfast. If we're going to be complete and fruitful Christians... And uh, the, he's not teaching sinless perfect. Like we're going to hit a point in this life where we never sin again. But the idea is we're, we're mature. We're becoming whole people in Christ. And that's a fruitful Christian, I take it. Someone who's fit to do service for him. And he's saying the person who's able to do that is has the intermediate step to get there is steadfastness. And you know what produces steadfastness? Hard things. <laughs> Trials. Afflictions. You know, to use uh, Paul Philippians 4 terminology, facing hunger and need not just plenty and abundance um, and a disquiet heart so if God brings us trials God brings us afflictions and our heart is disquiet it's not a it's not a gracious heart a content heart before him um, that is not steadfast right that's like the opposite of steadfast the steadfastness means even keeled staying still amid storms right um, in these storms, we learned which trees were steadfastly rooted into the soil and which weren't, weren't so much, right? Um, and if he's going to make us fruitful as trees, he's going to make sure we have roots that are solid, a root system that goes deep and secures us to be steadfast in him. And uh, back to Paul in the jail in Philippi in Acts 16. Um, so the first scene opens in what they're, in, they're singing in this unlikely scene. They're singing in prison. Does anyone remember what happens right after? That's the beginning of a story. What, what's the story about? And it's okay if you want to glance at your Bible, because I know we don't all have Acts 16 memorized. <laughs> There's an earthquake. Okay, so wait a minute. So uh, did we, we have a bad situation. Then we have a natural disaster. But what does the earthquake do? The jail. It opens the jail, and then all, all these, uh, the, the jailer thinks that all the prisoners were going to get away, so he's about to kill himself. Paul and Silas say, don't kill yourself, we're all here. That opens a, that's a great evangelistic opportunity, opens the door for an evangelistic opportunity. The Paul and Silas preach the gospel to this jailer. He believes, he brings them home, they preach to the whole family, they believe, they're all baptized overnight. It's an amazing work of grace. It's an amazing, we could say, Paul and Silas are doing great service for the Lord's sake. And where did it all spring from? It sprang from a heart of contentment. Isn't that amazing? They were ready to serve him shackled to the walls of this prison, even though they couldn't actually do anything. But they're like, we'll sing. We'll be happy in God. And then God frees them, and then they're ready to do what? They're, they're fitted for his service. And it's the same in the letter to the Philippians, where again, he's detained, he's in house arrest, and he declares there he has learned the secret of contentment. And uh, is Paul in house arrest in Rome, is he being fruitful for Christ? What's our evidence maybe that he's being fruitful for Christ? 
letters. We're, we're reading Philippians. <laughs> he wrote, the le- he wrote uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during that detainment. They wrote a big chunk of his uh, body of letters in the New Testament. Not to mention the evangelism that in 113 of Philippians, he says that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. And he, he says it in the passive voice, like they've, they've come to find out. <laughs> How is it that they've come to know such a thing? Well, he's been blabbing about Christ, right? And so he's fruitful. He's fit for service. That's the thing. If we're discontent with our circumstances, if we're in prison like Paul and going, oh man, I'm, I'm out of the game. I'm stuck sidelined, you know. And all these other people are jealous of me and they're all preaching Christ for selfish gain and I'm stuck here. You know, he could be thinking that. He would not be writing these letters. He would not be evangelizing the guards. But he's just kind of, he's able, because he's content, he's able to go, what's my assignment now, Lord? What's my assignment in this place right now? He's steadfast. So if we want to be fruitful in service to Christ, we need a stable base of operations and that is a content heart. Are there any other testimonies you can suggest, again, from church history or the Bible or your own observation or life, where contentment has prepared someone to be fruitful for God's service? We could kind of frame it also in terms of holding up under trials and holding up under affliction has prepared somebody to be fruitful for God. Yeah? Uh, The group of disciples that are threatened and then beaten and scourged in Acts Five, mm-hmm. uh, latter chapter, um, and it says, describing the disciples, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's a good one because they they um, they're fruitful, and then you kind of at the end you kind of peel back the curtain of you see contentment there. Their aspiration is to go through whatever they need to go through for the sake of Christ, and so they're like. They're, they're, they're rejoicing. They were counted worthy, is that what it says? To suffer for the name of Christ. So, so there, you, it, it, Luke peels back the curtain and says, and this was their heart. They were, they were content. I mean, if, if nothing else, they're content. Yeah, Christy. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, that's a great example. So Tony Arns, some of you may know, he's uh, he's leading with church planting at Folsom Bible Church, and he's a good friend of mine and of Greg's, and um, and has been a faithful pastor from before years years before in um, Potter Valley. But yeah, lost his son, his uh, young adult son, very tragically, right around the time of planting this church. Um, and the loss and the grief was very real, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't paralyze him. And 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 he's he's a guy. He's very motivated to keep pressing forward for Christ. And yeah, that's a great example. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's many. If you read any missionary biographies, you're going to find a lot of suffering, <laughs> and you're going to find suffering fitting people for service. I don't remember a lot of the details, but if you ever read to the Golden Shore about Adoniram Judson. It is an it is an astounding story of of him undergoing loss, but being refined for fruitful service that came after a long time of, of difficulty. Uh, William Carey in India is another example of that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, any other th- other than examples. Any other thoughts on that that issue of it makes us or questions? It makes us for, fit for service. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk about number five. There's a beauty and an excellence in contentment in its defensive capabilities because contentment delivers us from an abundance of temptations. Burroughs says, Oh, the temptations that men of discontented spirits are subject to. I love this. The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. What a great quote. The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. And back to Philippians 4. Uh, Philippians 4, 7. We've looked at this before at least once, but it promises the peace of God to guard us. That when we're, and the context leading into that is it, it, uh, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. So when, you, when there's problems that are threatening to discontent you in your heart, anxieties, you cast those on the Lord with thanks. So you ask him for help and then you thank him because there's also many gifts he's given you that we often overlook when we're anxious. So thank him for what he's given you. And you know what's going to happen? Paul says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, and so there's a guarding needed over our hearts. Our hearts, without the peace of God guarding us, what he's assuming here is that our hearts are, are open like a defenseless city. They're vulnerable. And uh, there are all kinds of ways that struggling with or, or giving ourselves over to discontentment will open us up to all kinds of spiritual dangers. Uh, he, he uses the example, Burroughs, of if you're struggling with poverty, you're, you're just hand to mouth. You don't know how you're going to make it from day to day. You're constantly dwelling on the things that you want and can't afford. Maybe your heart's becoming bitter about the things that you can't afford that you feel you need. And then you find an opportunity to gain by sinful means. Are you going to be vulnerable to that temptation? If your heart has been dwelling on, why don't I get X, Y, and Z? Well, X, Y, and Z presents itself in an illegitimate way. You're going to be very vulnerable to that temptation. Um, what is more vulnerable? Who is more vulnerable to adultery than a husband or wife stewing in self-pity and resentment toward their spouse? Um, who is more vulnerable to drug or alcohol abuse than the person whose life is haunted by wounds from the past and whose mind is constantly stormy and disquieted because of things that have been done to them. That's often what drives people to substance abuse, addiction to alcohol and drugs. Now, obviously, there are other issues involved in in all these cases, but one thread, a major thread that runs through them all is discontentment. If each person were able to learn the secret of contentment, how, how... Powerfully would that seal up all these openings, right? The, the, the dangers of, of theft or dishonesty, the dangers of, of uh, sexual sin and dangers of addiction, things like that. Discontentment often lies very near to the heart of all of these problems. Um, Burroughs says, Temptations will no more prevail over a contented man than a fiery arrow that is shot against a bronze wall. And I love that picture. You know, you have back in the day that have a fiery arrow, right? If you're shooting a fiery arrow, where do you want it to land? What, what kind of uh, target? Something flammable, like a thatched roof or something. Like that would be a that would be a money shot, right? <laughs> land that arrow on a thatched roof. <laughs> there it goes. But can you imagine shooting a fiery arrow against a bronze wall? Dink. <laughs> that's not going to do anything, right? That's that's a heart that's content against Satan's temptations. There's no opening. And he says this, For those who can say, Let God do with me what he pleases, I am content to submit to his hand in it. 
The devil will scarcely meddle with such a man. The devil will scarcely meddle with such a man. I love that. He just he, he, he knows there's not much opportunity he's going to have with you. So, contentment defends us against all manner of temptations. And the, the warning, of course, then is discontentment opens us up to all manner of, of temptations. Any uh, reflections, questions, thoughts on that? Yeah, Chin Wei. Brings up that and brings up Job. Like, well, he seemed pretty content, and then mm-hmm. the devil really meddled with him. Mm-hmm. It's a great, it's a great point. Yeah, yeah. There's other. It's, it's not. Uh, it's not always the case that. I mean, I guess what we could say is it's not an ironclad promise that if you're content, there will be no afflictions. Um, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah, John. I think one thing that can often be missed, right? Like. For those that are content in, especially in suffering cases like with like with Job, can be an encouragement to those around that are watching, right? Yeah, it can be like, wow, this person is content in Christ, even though they have this and this and right, like we go through the list. Like I know, like Smokey was an encouragement to all, yeah, right, with all his health issues and um, blindness, but still had a heart to serve the Lord, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's. Um, can be for people beyond the person that's suffering. Yes, yes, that's very true. Contentment can, yeah, can have an encouraging effect and a strengthening effect for, for others beyond. That's true. Like Job, and to return to the point of Job, I'm actually thinking more. I, I, I think Job is maybe is a, is a helpful counterpoint against the devil won't mess with you. Um, but it's it actually does illustrate well your. You're, you're not vulnerable to temptation because even though outwardly he was afflicted and he, sh- he was shaken, we could say that but he didn't cave, right? He never he never cursed to God and in the end, um, I mean the Lord definitely forgave some, some, some unwise words, words for the wind I think that's a phrase that shows up in Job described struggling with the wisdom of how to, how to frame these things but um, I think we can say on the whole, for what he went through Job's, Job withstood temptation marvelously. And, uh, yeah, he was vulnerable because he had a lot of good stuff. <laughs> That's another, we talked about that earlier. Having the things you want might make you vulnerable to temptation in unique ways. Yeah. That's a great, great question to bring up example. I mean, I think of Jesus, his temptations, and it's like, if Jesus had spent those days dwelling on how much he wanted these things, like, I can't wait till everyone's worshiping me. Because <laughs> it's promised in Psalm 2 that everyone, you know, everyone's going to bow to, you know. And then Satan says, well, why don't we just go st- cut straight for the chase? Like, if his heart was dwelling on that for 40 days and Satan said, all right, here you go, he probably would have done it. Right? But he was, he was, his heart was in a better place. And we don't know exactly what's going on in his mind, but clearly he was feeding on fellowship with God. He says in John, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So that when temptations come, he's, he's a brazen wall against those fiery darts. Sherry. One through great sadness and the other array of um, emotions. But that we're denying ourselves and picking up our cross despite. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think they're pulling up their bootstraps. Yeah. And that's showing contentment because they're not sad or whatever. Yeah. Even, but that's not biblical. Yeah. Very good. So contentment is another what it isn't. Contentment isn't just a, a self-sufficient strength. 
of denying pain and denying trial. It's it's God's sufficiency, right? And and uh, we're going to get to that actually toward the end here. But very good. It's not that one of the counterfeits of contentment is just stoicism or just a personal kind of finding strength in yourself, sufficiency in yourself. Uh, but thankfully, Christian contentment leaves a lot of room for true emotions, true pain, and and casting our very real concerns and cares on the Lord. Yeah, that's a good a good distinction. Let's look at number six. Contentment brings more abundant comfort than meeting our outward wants. So I want I want you to consider two alternative models for per, pursuing happiness. Okay, on the, on on your left we have meeting my outward wants. Okay, this is the this is what your flesh wants. If I only had you know, you've got your list in your mind. If I only had a little more money. If I only had a you know a wife or whatever. Um, and then the other hand on the right is Christian contentment, that quiet, still heart that's feeding on the grace of God, uh, happy with his disposal. So the question here in our, the battle that rages in our heart is, which of these will I desire? Which of these will I pursue? And Burroughs here is encouraging us to consider, you know, these are not equivalent goals in terms of the experience of them. It's not just a matter of how do you, what's the better route to the same point? You're going to end up in a different place. Um, Let's see some reasons why. Well, one, if you just get content, quote unquote, because you get what you want, your contentment is dependent upon creature, the creature, created things, which is just inherently unstable. The other side, you can have a contentment that is independent of the creature, that whatever, uh, the, whatever you know, the world, again, is a vapor. Things come and go, but you can have a contentment that is going to outlast all that if you have Christian contentment in Christ. Another comparison is that one of them, it overlooks God's love versus so if we're content because uh, we have received improved outward conditions. Think about that kid that is throwing a tantrum again. If we're like, I needed this thing, I need this thing, and God gives it to us. We were, we're not going to receive that as, oh, look how much God loves me. Our hearts are not going to be uh, impressed with the sense of God's love is giving us that gift. But if we're content with him, and we lay our desires before him. Because remember, contentment doesn't mean that we never ask him for things we don't have. But we can contentedly say, Lord, I, I would love this. I would, I would enjoy. I, would, I desire this. And if he gives it to us, if we're content, we can say, wow, what a gift of love from my heavenly father. So we can overlook God's love or we can enjoy it and sense it. The third comparison is change conditions versus being changed. Um, it's just better to have grace working inside of you in your soul. You're not a different person. If you, the thing you want, you get. That doesn't change you at all. But if we learn to be content by the Spirit working in us, we become a different person. Not, not a wholly different person, but we become um, more like Christ. We're actually being changed by grace from the inside. And uh, that's just inherently a more joyful experience to be changed from the inside rather from the outside. The fourth is this: if if we're just quote unquote content because of our outward wants being met, all that does is coddle our self love. Because ultimately, what's driving that is I love myself. We all love ourselves. It's okay. It's assumed, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You love yourself. You feed yourself. You, you know, you take care of yourself. But all if 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 we're just driven by I want X and then we get X, great. All that did was fulfill self love. But if we learn to be content even in the other way the way of learning God, by God's grace, and even when he says no to us in some things, what that trains us to do is it, it, it trains us to learn to love God. You know, we talked about how contentment is, it's bound up of all these different things. One of the things is love of God. 
And go, because what contentment says is, well, at least I have God. Right? That's, that's enough for me. So contentment is, is more excellent because it's a means of loving God and not just ourselves. The fifth comparison is that the way of quote-unquote contentment uh, from having our outward wants met is, is will only lead to a limited contentment versus true Christian contentment is comprehensive. So think about this. You have your shopping list of desires in your life, right? Some, some items you would love to obtain or certain conditions you'd want. If you have one of these met, that will lead you to a kind of contentment probably, at least for a time, a kind of contentment in that area of your life. Um, you really, really, really want that raise, and you get that raise. Like, great, I'm finally being paid enough. Let me ask you this. Will that make you content in all these other areas of your life? Because you got that raise. Is suddenly you're happy with all your relationships, and you're happy with, your, you know, all these, all these other, your health. It doesn't transfer. In fact, what it might actually do is it might highlight other problems that haven't been met. And I found this too, like I'll get, a, I'll get a nice thing. I'm like, this is nice. I really enjoy this. And then suddenly I'm like, well, all these, well, all these other kinds of things I have that aren't very good. Like I just noticed that. Like it kind of raises the, 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 your standards a little bit. And I think with life it can be that way. It can actually make us discontent that all these other problems haven't been met. It's just like whack-a-mole, right? Like every individual problem has to get met. Whereas the, the comprehensiveness, of, if, it's, if it's a heart that's learned to be happy in God, with what he providentially gives or withholds. That, that's, uh, that's very flexible. It's infinitely transferable. It's infinitely flexible over all different kinds of areas of life. Reflecting on this broad point of how much more comfortable, how much better the comfort of Christian contentment is than having our wants met. He says, Burroughs writes, What is heaven but the rest and quiet of a man's spirit? That is the special thing that makes the life of heaven. There is rest and joy and satisfaction in God. You have heaven on earth, or heaven while you are on earth, when you have a contented spirit. Now that's not entirely true, because we know that there's more to heaven than simply an inward state. But it's, it's very true that you're, you're very much tasting a, um, a real foretaste of heaven when you have a contented soul. You have that joy and rest and satisfaction. Um, and, and um, I love this, this illustration of, you know, this is another thing to consider is that we, we've talked about this in various ways, but when you have something you want and you feel you need, uh, if you really, we've talked about pulling the thread of going like, what, what, why do I want that? You know, why do I want that? Why do, and then there's like, ultimately, what do we really want out of all, all these things is we want some kind of inner state of blessing. We want, we want our souls to be in a place of rest. I think, I, I think we could say that very universally. Like what everyone's seeking, whatever you really want, if you ask why enough, you hit a point where you're like, I want my soul to rest in a place of blessing. This inward state of happiness. And, uh, and so then the question is like, well, which, which of these ways of pursuing contentment actually leads to that outcome? And uh, there's this, this um, example of a Greek, ancient Greek general named Pyrrhus who fought against Rome. And one day one of his, one, one man, I don't know who he is, Cineas, asks this, this Greek general, Pyrrhus, who wants to conquer Rome. He says, why do you want to conquer Rome? And Pyrrhus answered, so that we can then go on and conquer all of Italy. And he says, well, why do you want to do that? <laughs> 
And, he, and it goes like this. He goes, well, I want to we extend the sphere of our, of our dominion, you know, and have rest from enemies all around. And he finally, he asks why, and then he, he gets to the point where he says, we will then be quiet and take our ease and have feasts every day and be as merry with one another as we possibly can. It'll be heaven on earth. Sinaeus then asked, what prevents us now from being as quiet and merry together since we enjoy that immediately without further travel and trouble, which we would seek for abroad? without such shedding of blood and manifest danger. Can you not sit down and be merry now? And I thought, wow, what a picture of, do you really have to invade Rome and conquer Rome to be happy? Why don't you just cut to the chase and be happy now? Um, and there's, there's so much wisdom in that of saying, wherever you find yourself sitting in Christ. Now, it's more true of us than it is for him, because you could come up with arguments for why that maybe doesn't work in his case. I don't know enough about the history there. But it is true in Christ. This is the beauty of it. Why can't you just be happy now? You're asking yourself, well, why do I need X? Because I need this or that. Just why can't you? At the end of the day, you're going to say, so I can be happy. So just, why can't you just be happy now? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's the beauty of Christian contentment. So anyway, that was, that was a long point. There was a lot of twists there. But any, uh, any, any reflections on that point of comparing the different ways of pursuing contentment? Um, number seven, those who are content may expect reward from God. And um, Burroughs says, God will give them the good of all the things which they are content to be without. Meaning, I, I think the way we could put this is, God, I mean, the way we could put it is Psalm 84.11. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I would say that's another way to translate Burroughs' point is God, if you're in Christ and you're in the covenant of Christ with God, ultimately, he is not withholding any good thing from you. There may be some things that for a time, I mean, that's that's not to deny, we're not stoic, that's not to deny the reality of pain and hardship and loss. But what it is saying in the grand view of eternity, everything, everything lost or done without happily in this life will be compensated in eternity. And uh, whether you have to be content without money or without children or without good health, the Bible speaks of all these things or the equivalents, speaking in these terms, like even children. Well, we're not going to have marriage and children in heaven. But there's uh, prophetic texts that speak about the, the, the effect of God's redemption being it's better than having sons and daughters. So essentially, everything that we had to be happy without or give up He'll more than compensate in the new creation. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. So that's that's another beauty of of contentment is if we have if if God said no to something and we can be content without it, we can say, well, He'll give me, He'll pay it back. He'll pay it back in eternity. The eighth argument is that by contentment the soul comes to an excellence near to God Himself, maybe even the nearest possible. Now, Burroughs is reflecting on the, the biblical teaching about salvation, the outcome of salvation that we see in 2 Peter 1.4. Would someone read 2 Peter 1.4, please? Yeah, Terry. 2 Peter 1.4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature 
and an escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Thank you. So this phrase that can puzzle us sometimes, we've become, in Christ, we've become, in redemption, partakers of the divine nature. Now this means that we become participants in God's character, God's eternal nature. It's not, it did, we have to hasten to say, it's not as though the distinction between the creature and the creator becomes dissolved and we become God. But there is a sense in which we become God-like. And um, we get to imitate God in profound ways as we see modeled in Christ. And we, be, we become participants in God's life. And uh, we've, we've seen this point earlier, but the, the, where is contentment rooted in terms of the, the doctrine of God himself? It's rooted in God's aseity, which is a fancy way of saying his independence, his self-sufficiency. That God does not depend on the creature for anything. God is fully supplied in himself. He doesn't get his being from anything outside himself. He doesn't get his blessing from anything outside himself, which means he doesn't need us to be happy or to be anything that he is. He, he, it actually works the other way. He himself is the fountain of being and blessing that every other created thing enjoys. So, um, what this means for us is... Uh, to be content with, I'm sorry, let me find where I am. Uh, oh yeah, so this doesn't mean, I want to be careful, it doesn't mean that in being content we're like God and that we're being self-sufficient like God is. Like what Sherry said, it's not like, oh, a content person just has it all in themselves, all the resources they need. No, a content person is God-dependent like God is God-dependent. <laughs> so the content, a content Christian finds God to be the fountain of every need and every blessing, just as God himself finds himself to be the fountain of every blessing. And uh, 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 this is arguable, I think, but Burroughs thinks, contends, that God's independence is kind of the crown of his glory. Like, this is the most godlike thing about God. <laughs> I don't even know if you could say that, right? That one, But he says, that, hey, what, where does the glory of God shine more beautifully than in God's self-sufficiency? He has everything in himself. He doesn't need any created thing. I do. I agree it's a beautiful doctrine. And he says, isn't that beautiful then that we, isn't it excellent that in contentment we are partaking, we're, we're imitating like a shadow the beauty of God's fullness for himself. That we, as his creatures, can say amen to his fullness in himself. And say, yes, he is full. I'm experiencing that too. And so he says, where, where is godliness more beautiful than in the contentment? Said, I'm paraphrasing and say it like this. But where is godliness more beautiful than in the contentment which finds all our sufficiency in God himself. So, uh, yeah, meditate on, I mean, just a practical application point is if you're trying, if, if this series has you desiring to pursue the grace of contentment, one practical takeaway is meditate on God's self-sufficiency. That God who is so much higher than us and has so much more uh, refined tastes than us, Right, and is pleased with so much higher things, finds in himself everything that he needs. And where could God go to find something that he lacks in himself? And he created all things. And to say, wow, if we dwell on God's self sufficiency, the I am, um, it'll, it'll train our hearts in the same direction. Any, uh, that's it for the eight arguments for the excellence of contentment. Any, any reflections on that last point or any of the things we've covered here? Hmm. 
Well, uh, we've seen these eight arguments for why contentment is an excellent good for our souls. It's worthy for us to desire and pursue by the sanctifying grace of God working in us. And my prayer is that this lesson will stimulate all of our hearts toward this pursuit of, uh, of the excellent grace of contentment. So let me close us in prayer. God, we praise you, the I am, the one from whom all things flow, the one who needs nothing and depends on nothing outside himself. And we confess that we have enough in you to be content, that in Christ we've been reconciled to you, we've had his blood cleansing us from all sin, and we've been brought into your family to enjoy your fullness. We know there are abundant treasures and delights in your household, God, as Psalm 36 speaks of. It's a place of plenty. Unfortunately, we confess that our souls often don't make use of what's there. We cast about looking for other means of satisfaction, and we grow grumbly and discontent when those desires aren't met. We thank you for today showing us the beauty once again of how good it is, how excellent and desirable it is to be feeding on you, to be satisfied in the deepest places of our hearts in you, no matter what you may choose to dispose in our lives. And we pray that you would grip our hearts with this vision and in Christ lead us along by the lead of your spirit toward contentment. We pray all this for your glory in Christ.